We have an objective here, and we just put it in verse and sang it together. Show us Christ until something happens. And I don't know if you want that thing to happen, but I deeply, deeply want that thing to happen. And I can't cause it. And if I could, the Lord knows that I would give heaven and earth to make it happen. But I don't have the capacity or the competency to make it happen. But God, the Holy Spirit, can make it happen. He can make both of those things happen. Now, I don't know if you sang the words or if you sang them, if you made them a prayer. But if you made them a prayer and you mixed it with God-honoring faith, then I believe God's going to do the very thing we just asked. Twofold, that He'll show us Christ until every heart confesses that Christ is Lord. We're not just after the rote confession. We're not after the creedal statement or affirmation. We're after the blessing of living under the lordship of King Jesus. I don't know where you are with Christ or where you are in relationship to your confession of the lordship of Christ. Maybe it has been a long time since you made such a profession. Jesus is Lord. But we all know what it's like for those who are in Christ, for the heart to get cold, for us to drift, for us to excuse the basic spiritual disciplines to which God has called us for our own everlasting good. We're all susceptible to being diverted off of the narrow path and to use the imagery from uh, old John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress to find our way onto any number of detours or to be allured off the path of hot pursuit of the celestial city, the heavenly things, Christ Himself. So even if it's been quite some time since you've professed the Lordship of Christ, or maybe if you were honest, you would say, Jordan, I know for sure that I'm not a Christian. Maybe you've covered your life with a spiritual veneer, some kind of religious veneer, or maybe not even that. Maybe you don't have the baggage of religiosity, which in a way could be a blessing if you know yourself not to be a Christian. But the prayer is that here and now, even if you weren't planning on it, that God would intervene and He would do what we've just sung together. That He would show us Christ and that He would do it again and again as repeatedly and intensely as is required until our heart confesses today. We're not living on yesterday's grace. Here and now, Christ is Lord. I surrender myself entirely to Him without excuse. Well, Nathan mentioned a moment ago that John Snyder was intending to be with us. And uh, the Lord knows that it, has, it, it is my prayer that uh, he would have been able to be with us. But I think he was wise and it was the right decision for him to remain back with the congregation there because of the serious medical need and to shepherd the congregation, to be there, of course, with that family and to pray for them in this time of physical crisis. But John did share with me the things that the Lord had put on his heart, and I prayed about that. I even looked at the passage, and I thought, Lord, is this what you would have me to preach? But the Lord's led me a different direction, but I say that with a caveat. The direction is to carry on the things that we considered this week. But we didn't all consider those things. And this isn't throwing a stone or laying a load of guilt, but many of us uh, weren't able, for whatever reason, 
to be part of this consecrated week of seeking the Lord's face. But I shared with those who were there, I believe on Wednesday night, that uh, everybody else in the world had 52 weeks in 2015. But the Thomas family did not. Long ago, we consecrated one of the weeks of this year to the Lord God. And it, uh, you know, whatever challenges were going to come, were going to come. But uh, so help us God. We were not only going to be part of those special meetings Monday through Friday, but more importantly, we were going to set our hearts to seek the Lord this previous week, culminating into today. With all that in mind, whether you are with us or not, we are continuing the theme that we considered, and we're continuing it with the prayer that God would do more, even than, uh, from our vantage point, we did or did not have planned I wasn't prepared to preach today until maybe noon yesterday when I began to think and pray about this in light of the conversation with John. And I don't think the things that need to be said need to be said at length from me because the Holy Spirit can do more in a few seconds than I could do in ten lifetimes. With that in mind, we will continue the theme of seeking the Lord or continuing to seek the Lord. That's the banner that we lived under for the previous Six days, seek the Lord while He may be found. The prophet Isaiah is given by the Holy Spirit to command us. It's not an option. And there are finding times when God does draw near. And indeed, all of our lifetime on this side of eternity, before it's everlastingly too late, the Lord is saying, seek me, seek me. But now that we've been so clearly exhorted from the brothers who were able to be with us and preach to us, seek the Lord. And to lay open to us exactly what that looks like from a biblical vantage point. From God's own vantage point. We want to ask now today, so what? Now that we've been urged to seek the Lord. Even exhorted. And I believe with the aid of the Holy Spirit and His anointing. We have been pressed and pled with to seek the Lord. Will we obey that command? Well the text for today to consider that theme, is found in Colossians chapter 1. And I'll begin the reading in verse 21. Colossians chapter 1, will begin in verse 21. While you're finding that place, if you received one of the handouts today, you'll be able to follow along with this. And if you didn't, then you can grab one afterward that has a load of announcements on it we would like for you to be aware of. But on the side of the liturgy that walks through the service, it says at the top, Seek the Lord. Church, as we were exhorted last week from God's Word, we must obediently seek the Lord. Really, the work is set to begin. We tried to remove a bunch of rubble. We've been given a clear path of what it would look like to go fervently after the face of the Lord. Now the work begins, and that's the theme today. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He, that's God the Father, has now reconciled you in His, that's God the Son, the Lord Jesus, reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed... You continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, 
and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Now, Father, I ask that by your grace, you would allow us to be gripped by that conditional clause. It wasn't made up by man. It was sent as a dart from heaven to the church at Colossae, and through the the pen of the Apostle Paul in Scripture, to all your people, in all places, in all times. And you're the one who said, if you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel. You said that, Lord. So we lay our souls before you and we confess that we have made a million excuses for why in our circumstance, in our situation, in our day, and for these reasons, it's not quite time to get around to obedience. So we run from that. We turn away from all excuses. We consciously and deliberately lay down all of our resistance. We agree with you that there is never a good time not to seek you. And there is never a sufficient excuse. Even if we were to gain the whole world, there is never a sufficient excuse to forfeit our souls. What would it profit us, O Lord, if we gained the whole world and lost our soul? I ask that you, God the Holy Spirit, would burn the question into our souls even now. What will you give in exchange for your soul? And do not let us answer that unbiblically. Lord, some of us, even in Christ, true believers, bought with the blood of your Son, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, have become slothful and lukewarm, and to put it in biblical categories, We are living in sin. And we are not okay with that. Not only for our sakes, certainly for our sakes, but for Your sake, O God. For Your name and Your reputation. We ask that You would call Your people back to a faithful, obedient, Christ-focused, pursuit of yourself. And we ask for any among us today, and there are some, who are not converted, who have not been born again, brought out of spiritual death into a living relationship with you, an experiential knowledge of you. God, we ask that in the next few minutes, genuine conversions would be wrought by the Holy Spirit in this room in the hearts of these people. Do the work that only you can do. And do the work that your word tells us Christ bled and died to accomplish. Which we believe is the work that the Holy Spirit loves to promote in the world. So we're coming to you with confidence that we're asking for precisely the kinds of things that would bring you honor and glory. So for your glory again we say, answer this cry we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we deal at Grace Church a lot with indicatives. That's your uh, old English grammar class. It's the mood of a verb. It uh, refers to something that has happened, a statement of fact. Indicative, we could say, is the passive voice. It's the stuff that happens to us that we don't do on our own effort. 
And the gospel is loaded with indicatives. In fact, the work of the gospel is by definition something that someone else did, not something that we did. We could say with biblical framework, we are saved by works. It's just not our works that we're saved by. It's Christ and His work. So the indicatives of the gospel are the truths that God accomplished in Christ for the salvation of our soul. We've said so many times here that the gospel is not our testimony. The gospel is not what we did. The gospel is what God has done for us in Christ. And passively, by faith, we receive all that God is for us in Christ. Salvation is a person. We embrace the person of the gospel who suffered under the wrath of God for our sins as the guarantee that God will forgive us of our sins because Christ paid for them in our stead. And He will raise us to life forevermore with Christ who was factually raised from the dead. Actually brought again to life forevermore and is now seated at the right hand of God. So the Gospel's mainly, again, about indicatives. What's done for us. A, a passive reception of all that God is for us in Christ. And admittedly, for six years, we haven't dealt a lot around here with imperatives. And I make no apology for that because we've been preaching through the book of Hebrews. Now, I do believe there's an imperative in Hebrews. Look. Just look. Look and live. Behold, gaze, concentrate, fix upon, muse upon. Be gripped by, gaze intently at a person. The high priest, the only mediator between God and men who can bring you safely into the presence of God without you being incinerated. That's how powerful He is. That's how great His gospel work is. So look is an imperative. But admittedly, we've been pretty short for six years on any of you committing adultery? Repent. Any of you living in gross immorality? Turn from that now. Not tomorrow. Don't pray about it. Turn from it. You're not being faithful to your spouse? Fathers, you're exasperating your children? Confess that as sin and turn from that. You have a sharp tongue? You need to go to the prayer closet and give that to the Lord God and consecrate it to Him and say with old hymn writers, take my lips and let them be filled with messages from Thee. Take my tongue and let me sing always only for my King. We haven't dealt with a lot of imperatives. Again, I make no apology for that. Today is Imperative Sunday. We've been exhorted to seek the Lord. We've been exhorted to turn from our wicked ways, Isaiah 55 on Monday night. To forsake our unrighteous thoughts. We've been exhorted to go to the God who loves to have compassion on people like that. If we would but seek Him. So today's a conditional clause. We want to frame it biblically. We don't want to take it out of context. But you saw it as it was read. Verse 23 if you know how long you've meditated on the two letter words of the Bible but Jesus got his theology of the resurrection from the dead from a two letter word Jesus meditated on God's introduction of himself multiple times in the Old Testament where God would say I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob well the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead that what by definition made them of that sect, the Sadducees. They had other theological leanings, but that was the distinctive one. The Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead were trying to pop quiz Jesus 
one of their many times when they're trying to catch him in some kind of contradiction, and they dealt with resurrection stuff. So they come, as some of you may remember, with their little query about life after death, and of course they don't think that there is any life after death, and the way Jesus responds to them is, have you never read? He doesn't say, of course God raises the dead. He didn't deal in apologetic categories that were rational and logical. He dealt with theological categories. Theological. God logic. And he said, haven't you read in the passage where God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Two letter word, am. Well, if in the first century... God is the God of Abraham, then it presupposes that Abraham, who lived 2,000 years before the first century, is still alive. I am Abraham's God. I am Isaac's God. Well, to be their God presently, they must be present. So Jesus got his theology of a resurrection, of the resurrection, from a two-letter word in the Bible. And today we're going to meditate on the word if. I, uh, I didn't write it. If you don't like it, your argument is not with Jordan. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the Gospel. There are so many conditional clauses like this in Scripture, we would be here until this time next month if we just tried to take a careful look at half of them. Some of them are explicit, if, then, unless. Some of them are implicit. Mr. Roberts preached on one of those last Sunday at this pulpit, even after he ripped this microphone off his head. Walking all up and down the aisles and moseying all over the place and going to hide behind the piano. Mr. Roberts, Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. It's implied, but it's implied Certainly, then all these things will be added to you. If this, then that. Those kind of statements are all over the Bible. It's not a meritorious religion. We're not earning God's dispensing of good. It doesn't happen that way. We're not, um, we're not jettisoning the gospel to get to obedience. We're laying hold of the gospel in which we obey, which is why Paul says in our verse, if you continue in the faith, not moved away from the hope of the gospel. So explicitly and implicitly, we have statements like this all over the Bible. And I want to know, friends, how is it with you? How, how is it with your soul and God today? I'm just trying, God, help me. You know my prayer as I've wrestled with the Lord, as I've wrestled with you, O oh Lord, I'm trying to preach pastorally. I want to lift your soul out of a miry pit if I can do that. But I want to know, and I want you to know, and I want you to know in the presence of the living God that you know, that it's good with your soul in God. And you're not wasting your life. And you're not gaining the whole world and forfeiting your soul. How are we to continue to seek the Lord? Well, Colossians 1 is a great answer. Continue in the faith. Firmly established and steadfast. Do not be moved away from the hope of the gospel. 
Now, this requires effort. This requires deliberate choices. It requires a turning to one thing and a turning away from a trillion other things. This is putting the blinders on. This is saying I have one little life, and like the hymn writer, if God were to give me a thousand of them, I would spend them all this way. I'm going after the Lord. And it does require effort. So when I ask on one hand, how is it with your soul and God? I'm asking at the same time, what effort are you putting in? Not in your own power. Verse 29, the very last verse of Colossians 1, Paul talks about the right way to, to, to provide effort. I labor. That's like birth pain, serious. I'm toiling. I'm working hard. I'm striving, he says, verse 29, according to God's power, which mightily works within me. Paul would say, kind of on the, on the negative in this light, the effort that the Christian is to put into the Christian life, continue in the faith. Don't be moved away from the hope of the gospel. Work at this. Give your energy to this. In the negative, he would say to the church at Corinth in chapter 6, verse 1, do not receive the grace of God in vain. Don't let grace be poured out on your head and do nothing with it. Seek the Lord. Consecrate yourself to the Lord. I don't know if that's a category that you have put into practice. But if you've never taken a look at the Bible's idea of consecration, I commend that to you. Even for a cursory study, just go look up the Word and see how it's used. Leviticus chapter 20, Consecrate yourselves to the Lord therefore and be holy because, verse 7 and 8, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. How does He sanctify us? As we consecrate ourselves to Him. Or the vessels in the temple that were used for worship. Pots and pans. They didn't use them for other stuff. That's what consecration is. It's Romans 12, 1 and 2. In light of your saving mercies in Christ, I give you myself. I consecrate my life. A living sacrifice. All of me. All that I touch. All that I have. All that I want. All my aspirations and dreams. All my relationships. They're all yours, Lord God. That's consecration. That's the work of the Christian life. We don't want to confuse this matter. But we do want to say this. We're saved by works and that's Christ's works. But His work in our life will be worked out in our salvation. Becoming a Christian is something that God does to us. As we exercise the gift that He gives us to believe in all that He is for us in Christ. But living the Christian life is similar to becoming a Christian in the first place, both of them are miracles. This one by faith, this one also by faith, but this one requires diligence. Concentrated pursuit. Work out your salvation, Paul would say to the Philippians, with fear and trembling. So Christians, those who are already in Christ, how is it with your soul and with God? I'm going to confess that I'm continually encouraged by what God has been doing at Grace Church for almost nine years. February, Lord willing, we celebrate officially nine years. But while I've been continually encouraged, I'm consistently concerned. And it's not blanket concern. 
But it's here and there, and it's with all of us, honestly. I said to just one of the members recently, I hope you take this as an encouraging statement. I don't trust you. And I hope you take this as a more encouraging statement. I don't trust me. But it seems like we've gotten cooler over time, not warmer. Can we have a family talk? Visitors, welcome in to the living room. How is it with your soul in God? Do you need Him? Now I know that you know that you need Him ontologically, mentally. But sentiment and need are not the same thing. Good intentions and actual pursuit are not the same thing. And Paul speaking in gospel categories is saying, Christians, church at Colossae, let me get under you. Let me come alongside you. Let me help you. Don't go down the path of coolness toward Jesus. You will be holy. You will be blameless. You will be beyond reproach because of what God did in Christ through the blood of the cross. Our text. If you continue in the faith. Firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel. So in succinct as I can fashion, three things I want to say from especially verse 23, using the surrounding context. Number one, continuing in the faith, that's from verse 23, is a fruit of conversion. Don't get those two things out of order. And many of you know this, so I'll just say it briefly. Conversion, being saved, if you will, is God's work. But that work necessarily produces a fruit. The seed that falls into the ground of your heart, called the seed called justifying faith, trusting Christ, always, without exception, and yes, in different degrees of maturity, but always sprouts into a tree of sanctifying fruit. Always. That's just the power of the gospel. Justification, the old guys would say, you're saved from the penalty of your sin, death and hell. That is real. But sanctification is God saving you from the power of sin as you pursue Christ. And then eventually, you know how the old guys would say it, glorification, when you die and meet Christ face to face or He comes before our death, We're saved from the presence of sin. Conversion, this first point, is the thing that produces the fruit of continuing in the faith. So if you have not been converted, even if you've been religious, even if you're a member of Grace Church, then the reason the fruit is lacking is because the root is not present. Continuing does not cause conversion. The imperatives, continue in the faith, do not move away from the hope of the gospel, are built on the indicatives of verse 20 and 21. Let me just read those again. Through Him, God reconciled all things to Himself, that is through Christ, having made peace through the blood of His cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. God did something in Christ to reconcile you to Himself. Similarly, in verses 19 and 20, that's the portion that we read uh, just now. But if you look at verse 20 and 21, that's a portion we read a moment ago. You were, now some of you still are, so you can't say were. 
You were alienated. You were hostile in mind. You were engaged in evil deeds. Well, some of you still are that. And if you have not been brought out of that position into verse 22, now reconciled, that is made right with God through Christ. And notice it's through the fleshly body of His death that reconciles you. If you haven't met God at the cross, you're not a Christian. And you can't continue in the faith because you haven't begun. Let me illustrate this point. You're remembering the Ten Commandments. So sorely abused in our day and, you know, debates for centuries about exactly how the believer is supposed to relate to the law. But one thing we oftentimes overlook that's so just obvious about the Ten Commandments is verses 1 and 2. The Ten Commandments are in Exodus chapter 20. They begin in verse 3. But verses 1 and 2 are the foundation. Where in verse 2... God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He's saying, I've already redeemed you. Already made you my own. Now we know there was a remnant of true Israel, if you will, real saved people inside the big company of the nation of Israel. But God's saying, I redeemed you, so obey me. That sounds like Colossians 1 to me. The blood of Christ. You've been reconciled. Peace with God through His death. So continue in the faith. Obey. In chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 of Colossians, this couldn't be more beautifully illustrated, so let me read that. Chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. We're talking about being truly converted. Colossians 2, verse 13. When you were dead, some of you still are. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh... God made you alive together with Him, that's Christ, having forgiven all our transgressions. How did He do that? Verse 14, He canceled the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. How did He cancel that certificate? He took it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. What a description of Jesus. Have you ever meditated on those verses? On that picture? I don't have the world's greatest imagination, but that's a picture. Certificate of debt writing out all your wrongs against God, this verse gives the illustration that God took all that debt, all those wrongs, all the sin that you committed, sin of commission, all the acts of obedience that you should have done and didn't, sins of omission, all your self-righteousness, all your self-deification, root sins of unbelief, trying to be your own God, Everything you've done short of God's glory, Romans 3 says, is sin. Anything that has not glorified God, God's writing all that out. And this picture in this verse is, God took that decree and nailed it to a cross. But we know He took a person and nailed a person to a cross. So do you see the illustration? Christ took all the record of your wrong against God, all your debt against God, and was nailed to the cross for it in your place. So conversion is the root for continuing in the faith, which is the fruit. I don't want to miss that point. If you look back at chapter 1, you'll see the same truth. Paul can't get away from it in verses 13 and 14. He's talking to Christians. He rescued us. Well, some of you haven't been rescued yet. He rescued us from the domain of darkness. He transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom, Jesus, We have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. If you have not turned to Christ 
for the forgiveness of your sins, you have not been converted. Now I'm going to say that more carefully. If you have not turned to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, so that you can be reconciled to God. God is the goal of salvation. Then similarly, you've not yet been converted. Conversion, meeting God in Christ, having your sins forgiven, so that you can be reconciled to God, is the fruit of living the Christian life. Well, who is the one who was our certificate of debt nailed to a cross? Who is the one in whom we have redemption? Into whose kingdom we've been transferred? Who is this one, as the sermon text said in the paragraph right before, that God made peace through Him, the blood of His cross, or 122, He reconciled to us, reconciled us to Himself through Christ's fleshly body of death. Who is He? Well, Paul has a lot to say about that in Colossians. I'll just give you two snippets. In chapter 2, verse 9, He's the one in whom all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He's God. Or chapter 2, verse 3, He's the storehouse of all of God's wisdom and knowledge. In chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, He's the image of the invisible God. 16 and 17, He's the creator of everything that exists, even things you can't see, visible and invisible. And He made everything for Himself. That's the one who was nailed to the cross for our salvation, for our conversion. So that is number one. Continuing in the faith is a fruit of true conversion. I'm going to ask you, and I'm asking everybody, even if you've been a member since the day the church began or February of whatever year that was. Do you have a saving interest in Christ? I don't know if that sounds like clunky language. I mean, are you interested in Christ because He is your Savior? Do you love Him? Do you want Him? Are you pursuing Him? Have you consecrated your life to Him? Number two. Once converted, Christians must continue in the faith. Well, that's the if-then clause in verse 23. You're going to be presented before God, Christian, holy, blameless, and beyond reproach, 22, if, chapter 1, verse 23, you continue in the faith. It works that way. Isn't that what chapter 3 says if you're in Colossians still? Verse 1. If you have been raised up with Christ. That's the same kind of thing he's talking about in chapter 1. If you're a Christian, if you've been converted, if you've been born again, Peter would say this. We have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 1 Peter 1.3. That's what he's talking about here. Paul is in chapter 3, verse 1 of Colossians. If you've been raised with Christ, if you've been converted, if you've been united to God in the risen, the risen Savior, then do something. Keep seeking. We did not seek the Lord last week if we are not seeking the Lord this week. I love what Spurgeon said. All these 25 people got converted today? Great, the day will tell it. If you're not living for Jesus 10 years from now, you got nothing last week. Anybody who meets God in Christ post-resurrection in Scripture, never the same again. 
I, I, I tremble and sometimes honestly don't know whether or not to use positive personal examples, but I'm going to use one. March 1996. I haven't gotten over that. Nobody had to grab me or tap me or shake me and say, why don't you go get to know the God who loves you so much? Now, I have a painful awareness of how pitifully I have gotten to know Him over these years. But the deep desire to want to know Him seems bigger than me. Like, Little one looking at Aslan's and C.S. Lewis Chronicles of Narnia. You look like you've gotten bigger as a portrait of Christ. That's what it looks like after all these years. I'm ashamed of how little I know Him, but I want to know Him. I'm asking you, are you a Colossians 3.1 person or is that for all those spiritual people? If you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking Him. Why? Because that's where Christ is, verse 1. Seated at the right hand of God. Your mediator is in the heavenlies. Don't you want to know Him? Well then go seek Him. Let me illustrate this point by getting uh, just in your mind a quick example of the Old Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says all that stuff back there that happened to God's people really happened to them and it really happened to them for their good and that's actual history. And I'm not glossing over that history, but I want to use that history to tell you something. That's 1 Corinthians 10. And he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 1-13, these things were written for our instruction so that we wouldn't make the same mistakes they made. A bunch of them fell in the wilderness. That's, uh, that's uh, soft language for God killed them. He, he even gives numbers about masses of people dying. The book of Hebrews in chapter 3 would say a bunch of them perished in the wilderness, a whole generation, quote, because of their unbelief, Hebrews 3.19. So a bunch of these people weren't even real Christians, I don't think. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, all that stuff that's written about them is written for our instruction. And then he goes on to say, no temptation has overtaken you except what what is common to man. You cannot make any excuse for why you are not pursuing God. You can't say... Now, if she had it like I have it, then she wouldn't be so serious about those spiritual things either. You can't say that. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Because God is faithful, and He will never allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to bear, and with every single temptation, God's faithfulness requires that He provide for you a way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. Verse 14, which we often leave off. Therefore, beloved, flee from idolatry. That sounds like an imperative to me. Are you in Christ? Or are you like that Old Testament Israel that just had a bunch of religious baggage and you might have carried the tent poles and you might have set up spiritual things everywhere God's people stopped? Or are you a true remnant, alive in Christ, alive to God, desiring holiness because your God is holy? Do you want to know your God? Okay. No excuses. Not saying it's easy. You're going to be tempted and really tempted. But with the temptation, the faithful God will see to it. You have all the resources you need to turn from ungodliness. I think Peter finally got this. When he writes his second letter, he says at the outset. Now this is the same Peter who stumbles and bumbles and puts his foot in his mouth a bunch of times. Even got rebuked by Paul late, late in his Christian life. Peter says, God has granted to us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of the one who called us. If we will know Him, 
the true knowledge of the one who called us, then we'll have everything we need for life and godliness. I'm going to ask you again. Grace Church, I'm mainly encouraged, but we're having a serious family talk. How is it with your soul and God? Your pursuit of the Lord. There's another conditional statement like Colossians 1, tucked over there in a much more familiar passage to Grace Church at least, because we talk about it every Sunday. What is the Gospel? I hope you would say, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. I hope you would say that that's the Gospel because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that's the Gospel. But verses 1 and 2, have you ever let that conditional clause land on you right before 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, the Gospel? This is what He says! Now I make known to you, brethren, the Gospel which I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Let's just spin it. If you don't hold fast, then you believed in vain. That's not a works-based religion. That's what the Gospel does to you so that he ends that chapter. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. A bunch of you got it memorized. Therefore... Beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. You just trace back through that chapter, he's not talking about a bunch of do-gooding. He's not talking about a bunch of religious activity. He's talking about a real pursuit of the risen Christ. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15 is called the resurrection chapter. So when he says, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, what work are you talking about? Just look back up in the chapter. The work that leads to Mortality putting on immortality. The work that leads to death being swallowed up in life with no sting being in death. That's gospel work. Go pursue that Savior. Well, third and finally, conversion leads to Christian living. You, got, you must be born again. You must be saved. There's no reason that you could not be born again today. Christ is that good. And your sin, though that bad, is not greater than Christ's power to save you. So number one, you must be converted. Number two, that will give rise to living the Christian life. Christians must continue in the faith. That's not negotiable. And number three, this comes right out of verse 23 again, Christians are to remain in the hope of the Gospel. I just love... I love the Holy Spirit. I love the way the Holy Spirit says things. I would have expected Him to say, don't you move away. Uh, I would have expected Him to say, you continue in the faith and then give me a long list. That's not what He does. You continue in the faith. If you continue in the faith, trace back, you're going to be holy when you meet God face to face. God will see to it. You will be blameless. You will be above reproach if you continue in the faith. Alright, I'm ready. I'm ready. Tell me what to do. Do not move away from the hope of the Gospel. I love that. You've got to live inside the incubator, the cocoon 
of the glory of God in Christ. And God displays His glory nowhere more poignantly, powerfully, than in the Gospel. This is the hope of the Christian life. The Gospel. I've thought so many times because I've had the privilege to do so many wedding ceremonies as an officiant. But I've thought so many times about that illustration that I've used at Grace Church before, so you'll forgive me for using it again, but it seems appropriate. I've done several weddings right here on this platform. Some for Grace Church people, some for others. And the illustration goes in short form like this. Imagine when the doors fling open and the bride starts coming down, everybody notices that she's totally battered and tattered and soiled and muddy and unkept and you know just haggard and frazzled. At first, all the, you know, ultra-sophisticated, snooty ones of us say, I can't believe she would do that. And we talk bad about her. A nanosecond later, when it starts to register, our head swivels and we look at the groom who's awaiting his bride. And instead of feeling self-righteous about her, we feel sorry for him. Because she should have prepared herself to meet Him at such an occasion. And Ephesians 5, you guys know this language, says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her. But He did that work. We're told very clearly. So that He might present to Himself His bride in all of her glory, having no spot or no wrinkle or any such thing. Okay. So a bride's purity reflects mainly not on the bride, but on the groom. Do you see that? That's why Christians want to pursue Christ. That's why seek the Lord is not a, 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 a theme banner. It's an actual day-to-day I must. Because my Christ is worthy to have for Himself a people who reflect His own holiness and purity. We've talked about it in Hebrews. We're not going to run the race of the Christian life only to get to the finish line and hand to Jesus all the wretched things that He died to save us from. No, we want to go to Jesus unshackled from this nonsense so that when we meet Him face to face because of the work He did in us as we pursued Him, He has a bride pure and spotless. It brings glory to Him. That's why all the brides dress up on their wedding day. Yes, it's fun for them. Yes, many of us are all self... We are all self-centered. Yes, we are. And we do love to be thought well of. And we do want people to applaud for us. We do want people to like the things that we do. But at the heart of a good bride, there's a desire to be holy because of the honor that it will bring to the bridegroom. I'm going to ask you again. By the way, all this has been off script. I'm going to ask you again. How is it with your soul and God? Verse 21 and 22. You were alienated. You were hostile in mind. You were engaged in evil deeds. That's an old man gone and dead. Yet now He has reconciled you in His fleshly body through death. Here's the bride. 
in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach if, 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 indeed, you will continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. That's why we say around here all the time, preach the gospel to yourself. Stop listening to yourself. You're not your own anyway. There's nothing Satan can do to condemn you if you're in Christ. Don't listen to yourself. Preach to yourself. Psalms. Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him. Just like I said a moment ago, there's no reason that any unconverted person couldn't be soundly converted today. Truly born again. There's no reason. My Jesus is so mighty that He can save you right here and right now. Well, similarly, Christian, those who are already in Christ, there is no reason that you have to continue to live in miry clay. Zero. So all that list of stuff that I started to allude to at the beginning, if that's you, if you're knowingly living in sin, I want to say it rhetorically, why would you not? But I'm going to say it Imperatively. God commands you. Turn from your sin. And pursue Christ. If you won't do that. Your argument is not with Jordan Thomas. It is with God Almighty. You will be holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If you continue in the faith. If you do not move away from the hope of the gospel. But if you will not. Continue in the faith. And you will move away from the hope of the gospel. We can call this whatever we want to. But it's not a church. Let us. Be seeking him. If you have been raised up with Christ. Keep. Seeking. The things above. Where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Father we ask that. You will be gracious to us. You will encourage our souls as we turn to You and run to You. Some of us need to run for genuine conversion and need to humble ourselves and cry out to You to be saved. And many of us need to turn from known sin, lukewarmness, coolness, casualness, and all our other sophisticated religious excuses And we need to turn to You. So, meet us here in mercy. Deal with us in kindness. It is Your kindness that leads to repentance. And You have been so kind at Calvary. To the least deserving. Remind us right now that You are presently demonstrating Your love for us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I pray right now You would lock the Gospel into every mind until... Spirit, show us Christ until every heart confesses Christ is Lord. You take a couple minutes and meditate silently in the presence of God. Talk with the Lord in the privacy of your heart for the next few moments.